Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from Welcome to a public affair. I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host. Amid much controversy, the 2022 World Cup soccer tournament kicked off yesterday in Doha, Qatar. My guest journalist Tim Murphy calls it a decadent chaotic and grotesque spectacle that's become a symbol not just of the transformation of an entire sport, but of an entire economic and political system. Here he is introducing his cover story in the November-December issue of Mother Jones magazine, How the Story of Soccer Became the Story of Everything. Let's start with David Beckham and a $227 million payday from a country smaller than Connecticut and how oligarchs, big oil, and private equity took over the world of soccer. To explain, we have to start with Beckham's UNICEF Goodwill Ambassadorship. The stories that I hear, they're not easy stories to listen to. Violence against children marks them forever. It's wrong. End it. And get here. Qatar really is an incredible place. Behind the glitz and celebrity endorsements lie accusations of corruption and human rights abuses. The life you are living here is hell. I'm Tim Murphy, senior reporter for Mother Jones, and I love soccer. I started playing when I was five, been watching it on TV for 20 years, and it's become impossible to ignore how men's soccer has changed. Oligarchs, private equity, and nation states took over the world's favorite sport, and they remade it in their image. For a glimpse of how, just look at one of the year's biggest events. The winner to organize the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. Today on A Public Affair, we'll dig into the social and political dimensions of the world's most popular sport and talk about how autocratic regimes are increasingly using the sport to garnish their image in what's known as sports washing. Joining me between World Cup matches today is Tim Murphy, senior reporter at Mother Jones Magazine. Welcome to A Public Affair, Tim. Thanks for having me. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation. If you have a question for Tim Murphy, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Or you can also reach out on Twitter at WRT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. We'd love to hear your questions about the geopolitical world of international men's soccer and perspectives on what's happening as we kick off the World Cup uh, this week. Tim, I'd love to start today by having you give us some context for the Qatar World Cup, as you do so well in your article. Tell us the story of soccer's transformation into a crash course in capitalism and power today. Sure. Well, um, so, you know, the, so the World Cup kicked off yesterday, but it was actually sort of, a, you know, it won, Qatar won the bidding to host the tournament back in 2010. So yesterday's spectacle, today's spectacle really began 12 years ago. Um, and I guess going back even a little bit further than that, when the bidding began, um, Qatar won the World Cup at the same time that Russia won the right to host the 2018 World Cup. So they were both announced together in the same room in Zurich, Switzerland. Um, and, and The Guardian recently ran the numbers on the people who are in that room. And of, of, of the attendees, nine have since been ban- uh, seven have since been banned for life from all soccer-related activities. Nine were banned for some point of time. Uh, one was banned from the Olympics, um, and one of them has now invaded Ukraine, uh, I guess for a second time. Um, since that bid was announced, uh, that would be Vladimir Putin. So, um, you know, the Qatar won the bid after an incredibly controversial, um, process that led, you know, England, which had wanted to host either the 2018 or the 2022 World Cups to, um, launch an investigation led by a man named Christopher Steele, 
who you might remember for a subsequent investigation into Russian money. Um, and, and so this was an incredibly controversial process because Qatar had no history of international soccer really prior to 2010, um, which is fine. A lot of countries don't and still love soccer, still participate and, and so on. Uh, but they also didn't have any of the kind of resources that you'd expect for a World Cup. For instance, it's incredibly small. As I said in the intro, it's smaller than Connecticut. It didn't have any stadiums that would host an international sporting spectacle. Um, it is in the desert where it gets 110 degrees in the summer. Um, so you can't host a World Cup there in the traditional window. So the entire world soccer window revolves around the idea that you do club soccer in the fall, winter, and spring, and you do international tournaments in the summer. I mean, this is like just the rhythm of, of life. And um, Qatar meant that you couldn't do that. So there was a million things kind of working against Qatar hosting this tournament, um, but they won the bidding anyway. And 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 so in, in subsequent, you know, reporting and allegations over the years, um, you know, the Department of Justice has alleged that Qatar and Russia both bribed FIFA members to vote to award the World Cup to Russia, um, you know, so it's just been rooted in this in this scandal of of corruption from the very beginning. Qatar has always denied any sort of wrongdoing. They they hold this up as as sort of a important symbolic first World Cup for the Arab world, um, you know, which which it also is. Uh, but but so from the very beginning, back in 2010, when this World Cup has been awarded, it's been shrouded in this controversy over how it was awarded. But then in the years since, um, it has become uh, incredibly controversial because of how Qatar has gone about building the World Cup. You know, it is a um, petro state, and there just aren't very many actual Qatari citizens. There's there's a several hundred thousand. Um, most of the the kind of construction work in the country is all done by migrant workers who are brought in from South Asia, particularly um, Nepal, um, and they operate under a system or have operated under a system known as kafala, which, um, you know, human rights campaigners in the past have, you know, compared to modern day slavery, um, you know, there's, you know, widespread reports of, of workers' passports being taken by their employers, they're, they're bound to their employers, so they can't leave their job and they can't go any, you know, they get deported or put in detention centers if they try and leave. Um, and that has at least been in the situation in the country um, in, in the past. Now, Qatar has, you know, taken steps over the last 12 years. They've, they've made reforms. Um, they've announced the abolition of kafala. But if you talk to human rights watchdogs, they would say that, you know, a lot of this is just exists on paper and, and hasn't really been put in practice. So there's a confluence of, um, you know, the initial how they got the bid and also how they built this World Cup um, that has got a lot of people around the world pretty angry about it. You're listening to journalist Tim Murphy, senior reporter with Mother Jones Magazine, here on A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and we're talking today about sports washing and the World Cup in Qatar, which just kicked off yesterday. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call at 608 Two five six two zero zero one extension nine, or you can tweet us at WRT Talk. Tim, I'd like to pick up uh, where you left off there and talk a little bit more about uh, the ways that this regime in Qatar um, has used this tournament, or why they wanted to get the World Cup and express uh, a form of soft power through soccer, and have us. Uh, unpack that term sports washing that gets used a little bit. Uh, so what are the ways autocratic regimes use soccer, soccer uh, through sports washing? Yeah, so there, there's a long history in soccer of, of autocratic regimes and, and sort of anti-democratic regimes using using just spectacle in, in general um, to, to sort of solidify their report, uh, their, their support, um, you know, in, in the country. Um, the 19... You know, 78 World Cup in Argentina was, you know, an awful repressive regime using soccer to, to sort of stabilize its image. The 1986 World Cup in Mexico, which we revere, um, you know, had a, a brutal government. Um, you know, you think about like the rumble in the jungle or something like that. 
Um, so there's this long history, but what we've seen in the recent years uh, in soccer over the last couple of decades is is these, you know, countries or, or oligarchs or, or, or figures like that, you know, sovereign wealth funds, nation states, swooping in and, and sort of starting to take control of the actual levers of the sport. Um, and Qatar is, is sort of um, almost a singular example of that. So around the time that they bought the World <clears throat> I should say, around the time that they were alleged to have bought the World Cup, but along, when they got the World Cup, uh, you know, they didn't just get this international tournament. They also, through their sovereign wealth fund, um, which is, you know, sort of funded by oil and, and gas in the Gulf, um, acquired Paris Saint-Germain, which is the uh, biggest uh, club team in France, kind of long mediocrity that was in the hands of a, a Donald Trump ally named Tom Barrack um, for a number of years and, and not doing very well. And they swooped in, took this property and, and set about using it as this vehicle for like European influence and, and brand promotion. Um, so, you know, essentially turning, um, turning the club into the best team in France, one of the best teams on the continent and like a global flagship for Nike. You know, it's, it's, the Eiffel Tower meets the swoosh. They have their own. They have their own store in Rockefeller Center, basically, um, just, to, just to kind of sell this thing. And all the jerseys they say Qatar Airways, um, Qatar is Qatari-owned companies are, are sort of responsible for their sponsorship, which drives their bottom line, which allows them to buy the absolute biggest players on the planet. People like Lionel Messi and Kylian Mbappe. Um, so they they said about not just, you know, in one course, but a kind of a multi-course uh, mission to kind of take over some of the important levers of, of global soccer. So, you know, one of the people on the, the board of the Sovereign Wealth Fund, who also runs PSG, is on the executive committee of the European governing body um, of, of soccer and is responsible, largely responsible um, for sort of the direction of the sport and, and the, the future of the continent's various leagues. So, you know, and they they run as well. Um, you know, the state financed media company BN Sports. You know, has the television rights to, you know, English Premier League, um, Spain's La Liga, the French league, of course. Um, so, you know, they, they're just sort of this essential economic vehicle that everybody sort of has to, to listen to. Um, and what they're after is, you know, it's kind of. You know, it's not like they just kind of come out and say it, but the the, the kind of long game here is um, just a kind of form of soft power. They're an incredibly, you know, they're an incredibly small country. Um, you know, they they've existed since I think 1971. Um, Former they, British protectorate, correct? Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, they've <laughs> they want they need friends. Um, and it's a very volatile region. Obviously, it's not like being Connecticut. Uh, and, you know, they were recently under an economic blockade, you know, for years by a number of their neighbors. Um, and, and so having becoming, you know, the standard oil of international soccer or something like that is a, a really, really valuable thing. In, and so on the one hand, they're advertising themselves to the world as something not quite what they are, but certainly maybe relative to Iran, what they are like this place that you can come as, as a Westerner and enjoy the sights and sounds of Doha, you know, use our airways, do that kind of thing. They're, they're sort of trying to, you know, make themselves in, in a kind of a Dubai kind of way as, as an international destination. Um, they're making themselves inextricable from the economy of, of the world's most popular sport. Um, and they're, you know, soccer is diplomacy. So they're forming, you know, kind of key relationships, um, you know, with countries like France. Uh, France helped swing the World Cup to Qatar in, in 2010. Um, the former head of FIFA has come out in recent days, and he's, of course, banned from the sport for life, but he's come out and said in recent days, you know, that, you know, the, the vote was sort of rigged and, and that France did this. And in return, Qatar agreed to buy, buy fighter jets. And there's not any really evidence of that besides him saying that, but that speaks to kind of the level that which we're operating where, you know, these are places that are buying soccer and they're buying fighter jets. So there's this much larger kind of context to what's going on beyond the soccer field. 
Yeah, and of course, as you say, it's not unique to Qatar necessarily. And your article, the story, how the story of soccer became the story of everything, paints this uh, picture of this gradual growing influence of either authoritarian governments or oligarchs in the sport, both professionally and then at the the international um, level. Um, And you talk about the connection between authoritarian regimes in particular and what you call the intense tribalism of European football followers. For uh, United States listeners, it's easy to imagine that kind of tribalism. You know, we right here in Wisconsin have a a very clear form of it with the Green Bay Packers, right? The sense of uh, personal identity being linked to the identity of this team. And that, of course, is very much the case with uh, European club soccer as well. So tell us a little bit more about this interesting connection you make between how uh, those two are sort of made for each other, either oligarchs or authoritarian regimes, and then the tribalism, the followers of club football in Europe. Yeah. And so there's a, a great book that I reference in the piece um, called How Soccer Explains the World. And it was written, um, you know, 2003, 2004. And I, I just have thought of it you know, in recent years is this like incredible time capsule of what the world used to look like in the long off period of, of 2002. Um, so it, and, and, and that book largely focuses on, on sort of, you know, it's in the sort of age of writing about globalization and, and looking at how that has actually kind of seemingly hardened that tribal fan experience. You know, it's, you know, even, even as people around the world are getting interested in FC Barcelona because of their great soccer, FC Barcelona is just, you know, extremely very much of and for Catalonia. You know, these, you have fan bases in in Serbia that are, that are kind of forming their own paramilitary units to fight in the Balkans, Balkan wars. Um, You have, you know, just, you know, it's like there's been a kind of a retrenchment, a doubling down. This is, you know, in the late 90s or early early 2000s. So it was at once the global game, but, you know, a world of, you know, all these little fiefdoms. Maybe, you know, it's the Holy Roman Empire of, of sports. And um, that changes in the early 2000s. And, you know, there's sort of some organized kind of efforts to kind of, you know, globalize things a little bit, you know, like Nike just starts investing tons and tons of money. But what one of the big things that happened, sort of a moment the sports, the sport has never really moved past, um, was 2003 when the Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich bought the London uh, club Chelsea. Um, Chelsea was sort of emblematic of this old way that the sport had been organized. where the owners were just kind of local rich guys, you know, like the equivalent of a college football booster, you know, would own a team. The, their owner, a guy named Ken Bates, had made his money in ready-mix concrete. Um, he bought the team for a pound, which is probably about what it was worth if you factor in all the various debts. Then he added in a couple hundred million pounds of debt on his own in a couple of years, uh, in a couple of decades. Um for years, its kind of biggest, uh, most visible emblem was its hooligans to the point where Bates, this old owner, had talked about um, potentially installing like electric fences around the the sort of home cheering section. Um, so it was kind of classic English soccer. It was like ugly to watch. Um, it didn't have a big international following. They were kind of mediocre. Um, and that's the way it was. And Abramovich bought it and he saw instead, you know, a club based in West London. You know, I mean, this was a potentially really stylish property if if you pumped enough money into it. So he bought it, absorbed all of the debts, came from absolutely nowhere. Like a few years earlier, a Russian news organization had um, put up a one million ruble reward for anybody you could find a photo of him. He was like this invisible oligarch. Um, in in sort of Boris Yeltsin's Russia. Under Putin, he had become, he had ingratiated himself with the new president, even though uh, other oligarchs had had gone into exile um, by serving as the governor of 
this far eastern Siberian state. Um, it's the part of Alaska, the part of Russia that you can actually see from Alaska. Um, he would he would actually live in Anchorage for parts of the year and, and fly in via helicopter. So he's like this kind of international man of mystery taking over this moribund London soccer club and then just immediately investing like unheard of sums of money. So he bought it for like, you know, 200 million or something and spends basically that much in his first summer on new players, like just buying people, like just showing up with a checkbook and, and saying like, name your price and, and bringing in these big names. And then the next year he does it again and he buys the best manager in Europe. Um, and within a couple of years, they've won the Premier League. Um, you know, they start to compete in European competitions and, and Chelsea, which is nicknamed Chelsky uh, by its critics, um, becomes this kind of new model of, of soccer. So in, in Europe and in England in particular, you have fan bases that don't like Chelsea. You know, they don't like where this is, what this is meant for their team, but their response is not, we need to get the oligarchs out. It's we need our own. Um, so it, it begins this kind of arms race in European soccer that begins with him and, and then eventually kind of escalates over time to the point where the oligarchs are, are kind of the mid-tier level of rich and, and you get in this this kind of money that can't even be topped, which is the arrival of the nation states. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes, and I'm talking today with Mother Jones journalist Tim Murphy about sports washing, soccer, and the World Cup in Qatar. If you'd like to join the conversation, give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WRT Talk. We'd love to bring you into this conversation. There's so much to talk about. Uh, both in terms of the World Cup itself and the larger geopolitical world of international soccer. I'd, I'd like to turn our focus a little bit more now that you've given us this great context of the way that money has grown in influence in international soccer to talking about the criticism of the Qatar World Cup in particular. And um, a lot of the criticism has been leveled at Qatar for its um, policies on the rights of women or lack of rights of women and its um, uh, repression of LGBTQIA plus communities. Um, being gay is, in fact, illegal in Qatar. So there's a lot of international criticism. Um, how are the international critics and teams themselves actually raising awareness about these issues? Um, if you could give us a sense of that, Tim, and also your sense of uh, what impact it's having. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's kind of an evolving story. I mean, it's kind of an hour by hour story at this point. Um, you know, so in the in the run up, you know, to the tournament, there's been a lot of chatter. Um, I would say it's largely concentrated among the European North American teams in, in like Australia um, in, in terms of the actual, you know, activism around, you know, for instance, Qatar's ban on homosexuality. Um, and, and so there's been a real push, uh, or at least a discussion as to what kind of push there should be. Um, and in the end, you know, FIFA you know, and Qatar have, have worked FIFA, very that's aggressively. The, just, just so folks know, the uh, International Soccer Federation, essentially, right? Yeah, um, the global governance of the global sport. Um, and they've they've worked very hard to cut off any kind of actual notable dissent. Um, so, for instance, England has talked about, you know, the English Federation had, had talked about having a an armband that said one love and it had a, a heart on it and it was going to have um it was going to be a, a statement of support for LGBTQ um you know people and the the last minute FIFA and Qatar pulled out the rug and said you can't do this if you do this you're going to face penalties and like you know, FIFA in England had said, okay, well, we're happy to pay any fine, you know, we're going to do it. But the penalty would have been, I don't know, a yellow card or, or something like that. And so there was going to be some on-field sanction that the team decided it didn't want to risk um, facing. So at the end of the day, they, they didn't do that. They, they pulled their planned protest rather than face um, 
face an on-field penalty for that. Um, FIFA has instead rolled out like its own list of approved protests, which is sort of definitionally not a protest if it's been sanctioned by FIFA and Qatar to to do that. Um, so they've, you know, Qatar has, has sort of tried to insist that this will be a welcoming World Cup and and that, um, you know, your your banners and expressions of LGBT, you know, pride or support will not be suppressed if they're in the stands or something like that. But then, you know, just this morning, I, I saw a journalist on Twitter who was wearing a, um, you know, a rainbow t-shirt uh, talked about having to be detained by 30 minutes by security before he could get into the stadium and told that he had to remove his shirt. Um, so there's a real, you know, as as with promises on workers' rights, there's a, a disconnect between, um, or at least some dissonance between what the what the government says at the top level for public consumption and, and what things actually look like on the ground. Um, the U.S. team uh, has, you know, they've had a rainbow crest that they wear, um, you know, at various points, you know, that they've that they've worn during games. They're not going to do that in uh, for their games in Qatar. They've, they've, they've displayed the rainbow crest at their facilities in Doha. Um, you know, it's it, as, a, as a team, they've they've been sort of politically active in the past. They wrote a letter to Congress advocating for gun control after the shooting in Uvalde. Um, so it's, it's definitely something I think on their minds, but it's not clear that, that they're going to um, sort of step up and, and again, you know, risk on field sanction. You write in your article, uh, in some ways, this world cup has served a vital function. The scandal made it impossible to ignore what the event and FIFA are really about by putting under the microscope every part of the sordid system. So you've just been describing different ways that that's emerged. Uh, do you think the scrutiny of Qatar and soccer's corruption more broadly has made an impact on human rights in the country and how the sport works more broadly? There's this big debate going on out there about, you know, what is the function of both popular and journalistic scrutiny and protest for an event like this? And what does it amount to? What's your take on that? Yeah, I mean, I, it, there's, I mean, the concept of sports washing by which, you know, by which I mean, you know, sports using these uh, regimes, using these spectacles to burnish their image. Now that it can mean using these spectacles to um, overcome this existing bad image, or it could mean projecting sort of the image they want in the world, or, or it could just mean we're paying the media to shut up about the things we don't want them to talk about, which is what's happening here. Fox Sports says it won't discuss human rights. Um, so so it's a kind of a big catch-all um, term. And, and one of the things that you kind of get with sports washing is this like kind of idea of like agency and, and progress, right? Like you're kind of selling the idea of a give and take, you know, the idea of a discourse that, you know, Saudi Arabia will buy your club, but we'll have influence on Saudi Arabia once they own our club. Like we'll be able to, you know, work with them from the inside or, or something like that. So there's, there is that dynamic. And I think you have to always be careful about that. You know, when, when Qatar announces that it's going to be, you know, the first carbon neutral world cup, like, is it, <laughs> I mean, how is that possible? Have you captured the the carbon footprint of every single migrant worker going from Nepal to Doha because I feel like that is impossibly high um and and so but you know they're trying to enter into the idea that they are you know they're moving you know they're they're sort of embracing these sort of goals that critics might have exalted um but at the same time you know Kafala is as I mentioned you know sort of used widely throughout the Gulf and Qatar is really the only country that you read a lot of stories about certainly as a sports fan um, in relation to Kafala, in relation to its migrant workers. Um, and and I, I don't know that we, we would be doing that if it weren't for the World Cup. And I don't know that Qatar would have taken whatever, whatever, you know, cosmetic or, or vaguely substantive steps that they've taken on migrant workers' rights um, if it weren't for the World Cup. And I don't know that um, they were would be any sort of talks about creating a, a pot of compensation money for migrant workers um, if it weren't for the decade plus of sort of very persistent advocacy and, and criticism and investigations in relation to the World Cup. Um, so it's, is it like a net, <laughs> you know, has this improved, you know, the situation, is it, is it, is it sort of, 
I don't think it makes it kind of the Qatar World Cup worth it. But at the same time, it was easy to envision a scenario in which it was even worse if people had shut up from the beginning. So I think there is definitely a case to be made and how this has played out that that staying quiet um, was not would not have been the right you know approach that that sticking to sports would have been doing Qatar's bidding to a much greater degree. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. I'm talking today with Mother Jones journalist Tim Murphy about sports washing and the World Cup in Qatar. Please join our conversation. You can give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or reach out to us on Twitter or Facebook. We're talking right now a little bit about the media coverage of Qatar and the World Cup and human rights in Qatar in particular, and the ways that the media have helped create some scrutiny of human rights issues in Qatar. Uh, I'm wondering, Tim, uh, your perspective about uh, the media coverage of the Qatar World Cup versus the, the World Cup in Russia in 2018. And prior to that, we could go on back. You mentioned earlier you know, a long history of um, the World Cup happening in cahoots with problematic uh, governments, right? Going all the way back to, to the Argentina dictatorship in, uh, the, I think, 1918. Um, tell us more about how you see the media landscape and the World Cup right now and whether or not um, human rights in Russia, for example, was getting the same level of scrutiny. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um sort of Qatar, it's it's sort of been a totality of the story of Qatar over the last 12 years in the way that it was not necessarily the totality of the story of, of Russia. Um, and there, there's certainly a few reasons. One is just on a kind of logistical level, the U.S. embarrassed itself and, and lost Trinidad Tobago and so did not qualify for the 2018 World Cup. And at least in the U.S., the presence of the men's national team sort of shapes a lot of coverage and and, and chatter and enthusiasm about this event. So I I just don't think that Russia 2018 had the same level, reached the same level in the discourse for a sustained period of time like Qatar did. Um, Another is just kind of on its face, Qatar was kind of incapable of of the task at hand, right? They had to move the World Cup. So the, the kind of prima facie, like logistical issues of Qatar existed in a way that they did not for Russia so that anyone could just kind of look at it and be like, this doesn't make, this doesn't make sense. You don't, you don't have, well, you have a summer that can't host games in the summer. You don't have state. You have to start literally from zero. Um, But I I definitely think there is, um, you know, and there's a kind of really important truth, you know, to the extent to which Russia was able to unfold in the way that it did. Um, So there was like a kind of slight, you know, I think England, um, when I say England in the UK, the England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland uh, compete as their own entities for for soccer. Um, England registered a diplomatic protest, so they didn't send the prime minister, the, the queen or whatever, to the World Cup, which is something that matters, <laughs> I think, to people in diplomatic circles, probably more than in sporting circles. Um, so there was, you know, there was that. But, you know, again, this had taken place in... 2018, four years after, you know, the kind of initial invasion of Eastern Ukraine. Um, This took place after the poisoning of of dissidents, you know, in the UK um, by Russia. So um, it was a testament, you know, the the fact that it went on to the extent that it did um, without, you know, Russia being kicked out, like Russia was kicked out this year, um, is a testament to sort of the capture that Russia had of European um, soccer specifically. So, and this came up after this, after, yeah, this spring's invasion of Ukraine. Um, You know, Russia had for years bankrolled German soccer. Um, They spent like hundreds of billions of dollars uh, on sponsorships underwriting, you know, one of the biggest clubs in Germany, Schalke, which Putin had decided to do after speaking with uh, the former prime minister, Jared Schroeder, um, who was from the kind of Gelsenkirchen area. It was like, that's the team that you should fund. So Putin did it and was very explicit when he did it at the time that this was linked to this 
decision to pipe in Russian natural gas to Germany, um, which is, you know, a kind of another way that, you know, Putin linked his his fortunes uh, in Germany's. Um, he was Gazprom, the state owned uh, gas company was underwriting the Champions League, which is the highest level of, of European club soccer. Um, it was one of the major sponsors. One of Gazprom's top executives was on the executive committee, <laughs> along with one of the guys on the Qatari Sovereign Wealth Fund um, of of the European governing body. So, so Russia just had a, a kind of degree of leverage and control over the sport back in, in 2018. I think that they spent years building, um, and that gave them a degree of insulation. And it was only after, you know, this actual kind of full-fledged land war in, in Ukraine that, you know, UEFA and FIFA stepped in and, and kicked them out of World Cup qualifying, kicked them out of this competition. But even now, you know, Putin made the president of FIFA a, uh, he, he gave him an official award in 2019 called like the Order of Friendship for services rendered to Russia. Like they're still friends. Um, the president of FIFA recently called for a ceasefire in the war, which would be incredibly favorable to Russia. Um, you know, the Russian uh, President Putin is, you know, worked closely with the Qataris on the organizing of this World Cup. The uh, one of the you know men responsible for planning this just recently thanked Russia for all of its support. So um, it's a testament to the fact that Russia sort of already had all of this baked in support and Qatar was kind of starting from zero um, that I think some of the criticism was leveled in the way that it was and at who it was leveled at. To build on that Russia connection and, and start to turn things back a little closer to home here, I want to quote a, a couple of lines from your recent piece uh, from the Mother Jones website this weekend, Qatar has already won the World Cup. You write, the last World Cup was in Russia, the next World Cup final will be in Texas. Uh, your juxtaposition here is really evocative and powerful in thinking about Petro states and their connection with soccer, but I'd be interested to hear from you what you're meaning to imply there by putting those two together and maybe have a, a link up to a discussion about sports washing in the United States as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the issues facing you know the United States are not the same issues facing Qatar, although you could certainly talk about the United States relationships with places like Qatar. Um, but it, it's worth interrogating, you know, the the sort of the politics of, of sports everywhere, you know, that it manifests itself. And, and in Texas, you know, right, you have this the World Cup final is going to be played in, in Dallas at the massive palace built by, you know, Jerry Jones, a, a former <clears throat> a former oil man with uh, a pretty sordid, um, you know, history. Um, you know, a, a friend of, of Donald Trump, um, you know, in a, in a state that's, that's, you know, has a law criminalizing homosexuality on the books that they've refused to take off their books, um, sort of in, in protest of the Supreme Court for, for uh, I guess, 19 years now. Um, so, um, you know, I, I think, and, 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 you know, you have tax, hundreds of millions of dollars on, on taxpayer funding for stadiums so that you have this kind of element of, of excess. Um, and so it's just worth, um, you know, sort of challenging these things as they're laid out and separating the the sort of brilliance and, and joy of, of sports from the people using them for with their own, you know, vanity or their own kind of state building projects or, or things like that. Um, and I think, you know, you also have, uh, you have more power and agency to uh, affect things in the United States than you do in Qatar. Um, you know, and, and you see, uh, you know, examples of that in American sports all the time over the, you know, for instance, moving the all-star game out of Colorado, uh, Sorry, to Colorado, out of Georgia, um, you you've seen it in relation to protests over you know, you know, conservative policies in in Arizona or in North Carolina. Um, so there's a, a sort of strong history of sort of anger and activism driving um, changes in American sports at a kind of, if not necessarily a structural level, at least in a, a sort of significant 
um, surface level. So, um, you know, I would I would say don't let don't let this focus on on the politics and the machinery and the structures of sports end with the World Cup in Qatar. It should be sort of teachable in, in terms of how these forces are interacting and and where where money is coming from and, and how it's going. Yeah, I mean, in particular, in terms of migrant uh, rights. There's a huge human rights issue to talk about in the United States as well. Um, the numbers in many ways probably uh, pale in comparison in Qatar to the numbers of migrant deaths coming to the United States, for example, of people over the years dying trying to get to the United States. So there are certainly issues that could come to the fore there. Uh, what kinds of lessons um, does the the current debate about the Qatar World Cup provide in terms of the event in 2026 in North America uh, being an opportunity for creating conversations about human rights in the U.S., Mexico, and Canada? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I, I think, you know, three, you know, three countries with, I mean, there's a real range there. So I don't think you'll have the the sort of simple kind of through line that you had in Qatar, um, you also have a situation where like the stadiums all exist already, so that you don't have the the same sort of you know construction narrative. But you can you can see sort of you, you could see sort of how you know FIFA and its sort of sponsorships and its like TV you know media sort of deals work um, and and sort of the demands that they place on cities. It's very similar to the Olympics. You know they don't just want to know if you have a stadium. They want to know if you're going to spend like a hundred million dollars, you know, to build a light rail or like, you know, all these X, Y, and Z. So you can, you start to see how sort of little of, of the, the, you know, bidding processes, for instance, actually depends on whether you have a place that can host a soccer game, you know, how, what you would think is the, the kind of one one level stuff of a world cup is actually not really what, what people care about at all. And it was interesting, actually, uh, in the run-up to this world, the, the 2026 World Cup, Chicago just took itself out of the bidding entirely. They said, like, we looked at what FIFA wants from us, and we're not going to pay for that. Like, you know, if you want to play a game at Soldier Field, we can figure it out. You know, it's there. But um, they they concluded that this was not a good investment at all for Chicago because it was not really about soccer. It was about this massive spectacle for advertisers and, you know, skimming money and, and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, the Olympics in, in general are also a very good way of, of sort of looking at how big sporting events diverge from that kind of purported mission and, and they diverge from what you tune in for and, and become about, you know, something else entirely. You're listening to A Public Affair on WRT 89.9 FM. My name is Douglas Haynes. I'm talking today with Mother Jones journalist Tim Murphy about sports washing and the World Cup in Qatar. Uh, Tim, you also uh, write uh, in Qatar has already won the World Cup that soccer fandom, like so much of modern life, is a constant struggle to figure out where you have leverage and responsibility and where you must simply participate in society. So this brings up the role of the the fan and the observer. And I have a question here from Andrew. How do you enjoy the sport knowing all of this? And how do you separate the huge structural problems from the sport itself and, and the joy in participating as a fan in, in this kind of event? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I would say, well, there's a kind of, to cop out, there's kind of a gradation. So I don't, you know, I don't go out there and I don't root for Paris Saint-Germain, um, you know, to beat the minnows just because it's a Petro state that has all of that money. I don't go out and become a fan of, of Newcastle United now that it's been bought by Saudi Arabia uh, <clears throat> by a, a by the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I at the margins, I try not to root for the teams that are the most sort of kind of at the vanguard of this oligarchic, you know, big money takeover. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I participate in, in society. Um, and so I guess one way I think about it is, um, you know, you don't surrender your, your sort of stake in all of this. And it's important to remember, like, that this, you know, kind of the reason the reason all of these regimes want a piece of it is because it doesn't like 
fundamentally belong to them. The thing that makes it the biggest thing in the world is the sport and the in in the sort of not necessarily <laughs> the togetherness very divisive but it's it's the the kind of concept of a universal like global spectacle and that is something that they can bottle but that they can't produce it's not you know they can come in and, and tap the spring but like they don't make the water run um so i i kind of go back to that like yeah this is i'm you know seeing these tv ads where the government of qatar is bragging about the military bases it it has or something like that and that's not great but at the same time like you know senegal and the netherlands are coming together and and everybody in the world cares so i don't think i think that they can they can harness that for bad ends but they they are not the same thing as that and as you say the sport brings a great deal of joy to people in all walks of life right i was thinking about this on the way here i passed some kids playing soccer in schoolyard and watching them score a goal as I was biking by and thinking about joy at the heart of this game. And we have, of course, come almost to the end of our time, and I think we'd be remiss not to focus on that joy a little bit that brings people together around this game, for better and for worse. Um, So the USA and Wales kick off in a few minutes. Um, What are the prospects for the U.S. men's team in this tournament? And what is the team's effort in particular mean for the current state of the sport in the U.S. right now? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's their their prospects seem to have fluctuated depending on what what game you've watched. They're a really young team. They were before bringing in a couple of old graybeards because of injuries. Uh, they were the youngest team in the tournament by a large margin, um, and and that experience has meant that they've been very inconsistent. It's the most talented talented group um, they've ever had with with a number of players playing on on really big European clubs, um, but. Um, with that, you know, with that youth comes that inexperience and, and sort of on one game off the next. So for me, like if they're going into their third and final group stage game with something to play for, I'd consider that a good world cup. Uh, if they make the second round, that's great. I think they have the talent to make the quarterfinals or, or even the semis with, you know, the luck going their way, but a lot of teams do, and, uh, I wouldn't put any money on it. So you know, I but I definitely think they can beat Wales, and and that's probably their most uh, important game right off the bat because Wales thinks they can beat the U.S. too. Um, I, I think in, in terms of the broader picture, in in some ways, I mean, soccer in the U.S. You know, men's and women's soccer seems like it's just kind of continuing on this slow, low, you know, slow but up steady upward trajectory. Um, you know, American soccer audiences have driven to a large degree like the prominence of the english premier league with the um billion dollar tv deals that american audiences command um you know the sport is just growing and growing the mls is getting better and better um so i think you know if the u.s loses all three games and, and kind of bombs out i don't think it'll be a an, an enormous setback for the future of the sport but i think a, a big strong showing would would just be another kind of kick in the butt for it. Um, you know, you see events like making the semifinals and <clears throat> making the second round in 2010, making the quarterfinals in 2002. Those are galvanizing in, in terms of getting younger people interested in the sport and also older people to, to kind of, you know, respect the sport and in, in the in the hold that is captured on people here. Can you talk a little bit more about the makeup of the U.S.? team you know soccer historically has been criticized in the united states for being a kind of middle class white person's game uh you look at the u.s team that's not necessarily the case tell us more about uh the diversity of players on the u.s team yeah there, there's a real range it's not you know it's not just uh you know suburban white kids um by by any stretch um you know there's uh you know, I mean, there's just a real range of, you know, um, you know, you have Christian Roldan, who's the son of um, Guatemalan and Salvadoran um, immigrants, you know, from, from Southern California. You have, um, you know, Weston McKinney, you know, an African-American midfielder from Texas. You have, uh, you know, you have people with sort of multiple nationalities like Yunus Musa, who was born in New York City to Ghanaian 
parents uh, raised in England and Italy, um, Serginio Dest, who was born in the Netherlands. Um, you have Tim Weah, who is who has the, the greatest footballing soccer pedigree of anyone on the team because his father, George Weah, former World Player of the Year, currently president of Liberia. Um, but he was born in Brooklyn and his mother is Jamaican. Um, it is a real, uh, it is a real kind of cross section. Um, and, and it's a, a just a, a lovely team to root for I think, um, you know, at, at once very talented, but still very much, you know, underdogs and, and, and trying to kind of make it in a, in a, in a sort of bigger pond. In our in our last uh, minute or two here, Tim, any predictions for surprise teams that might raise the international profile of their country in this tournament? Mean something to a country in a really big way? Yeah, um, I mean, I think you know a team like uh, Ecuador, which we saw in the opening game yesterday. Um, Ecuador does not have a a really deep World Cup history. I think they qualified for the first time in, in 2002. They've made the second round before, um, but they're really emerging in South America as the court of, as a sort of like the force in the North. Uh, they supplanted Colombia at this World Cup and, and Colombia's traditionally, you know, been a, a South American powerhouse. You know, they're making a pretty good case to be, to, to enter into that, that sort of tier that's reliably making the tournament and reliably giving anyone a hard time. Um, that's a very, uh, you, you know, talented, uh, talented side coming up. Um, you know, you look at a team like Senegal, which just lost earlier today to the Netherlands, but um, again, qualified for the first time in, in 2002, um, recently won the African championship, um, just, you know, loaded with really, really talented players. Um, they might be maybe one player short, um, but that's a team that, you know, on its day can, can beat just about anyone in the world. Um, there hasn't been an African team in the quarterfinals since 2010 um, and never won in the semifinals. So, uh, you know, a team like Senegal or a team like Morocco making a run would be really great. Well, I don't want to keep you, Tim, from the joy of the U.S.-Wales kickoff coming up here momentarily. I so appreciate you joining us here on A Public Affair today. You've been listening to A Public Affair with journalist Tim Murphy from Mother Jones talking about sports washing in the World Cup in Qatar. I'm Douglas Haynes. I'd like to thank uh, our engineer, Andrew, our producer, Jade, and news director, Sholly. And thank you, listeners, for joining us today on A Public Affair here at WRT 89.9 FM Madison. Stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat. Yeah.